From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. In the wake of a new law passed in 2022 by the Utah legislature, school districts across the state have been inundated by requests to ban books. In passing the law, legislators noted that they were seeking to prevent pornography and indecency in school libraries. But the vast majority of the targeted books focus on race and gender and sexual identity. And it's true that some of these books include references to sex, but many appear to have been deemed inappropriate simply because they are about gay people or because they address issues like systemic discrimination. And Utah isn't alone. In Wyoming, a county prosecutor threatened to file charges against librarians who dared stock a book called This Book is Gay. In Tennessee, one county board of education voted to remove the Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novel Mouse from an eighth-grade module on the Holocaust. In Florida, officials in one school district banned books, including All Boys Aren't Blue and When Aiden Became a Brother, and a picture book called Entango Makes Three. That latter book, by the way, is a true story about two male penguins who work together to help nurture an egg and raise a baby. Book bans aren't new, but there's ample evidence that we're in the midst of a resurgence of interest in keeping certain books out of the hands of children. And here's the interesting thing. You'll find very few people who would argue that any child should have access to any kind of content at any time without any limits. Almost all of us do believe in some limits. But where does the bar get set, and who gets to set it? Genevieve Ford is a professor of English at Utah State University on a campus on the edge of Ute and Navajo tribal lands, where she teaches courses on children's literature and Native American literature, and where she's been thinking a lot lately about where this current era of book banning came from and where it's going. Genevieve Ford, welcome. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Can we have a talk about Tango? Because this is a book that was the most challenged book in America right after its publication. That was back in 2005. And people sought to ban it more than any other book in the years past that. And it's still today one of the most challenged books in the country. So clearly this book must be gratuitously violent or pornographic, right? Oh, yeah. It's got penguins nurturing an egg. It's really terrible. <laughs> what happens with this book is it's one of the first picture books dealing with LGBT identity. And so even though it's about penguins and it's about a true story of two male penguins who raised an egg together at a zoo, um, it becomes a target because it's telling a story that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. I bring up Tango because it's been around for 17 or 18 years, and I think a lot of people feel right now, I feel right now, sort of viscerally, that there's this this resurgence in book banning, but book bans aren't new. We've been fighting these fights for decades and, of course, for centuries. I think the first book ban in America was in, like, 1637 or something. So, so for me... Your perspective, is this just cyclical? Are we part of this cycle right now? Or is there something genuinely different about what's happening in America right now? Well, there's definitely a political pushback and a political aspect to this current spate of book banning. You can see a lot. It's just like 
right after we had a, our first black president, we had our a really we had some pushback from that with a lot of people who just weren't quite comfortable with some of the things that that involved. And so I think you 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 see some back and forth political pushback behind some of these things. You mention uh, books about race. One of the most challenged books right now is the sixteen nineteen project. Yes, that's a fabulous book. And what is freaking people out about this? Well, I partly because of its scope. It's dealing with things that the textbooks are often banned if they start talking about things like the traumas that come from certain unpleasant parts of American history. So if there's too much in a textbook about slavery and the real raw details of what that involved, textbooks are often banned or edited or censored in various ways um, because people want a happier version of history, a more patriotic version of history, you know, a whitewashed version of history. And it's been a target, as you mentioned earlier, not just of challenges from concerned parents, but from legislators in state legislatures all across the country. Um, and and these laws, this is this is the part that's sort of really different right now, because we've always had these challenges, but now state legislatures are putting laws on the book and, and local counties and cities are putting laws on the books that make it, in some cases, illegal, not just inadvisable, but illegal to expose children to these books. Yeah. So in Utah, there was House Bill 374 um, called the Sensitive Materials in Schools Bill. And when that was put into law, if you look at it, a lot of it's just making sure that curriculum is evaluated carefully. And But if you look at it, there are a few places where it talks about um, avoiding certain types of texts. And so um, when that came into law, the Alpine School District took the opportunity to pull 52 books from their library shelf. And so that's a huge blow to any media center to have that many books just taken out arbitrarily, really. Um, and there was such a national pushback to that that they brought them back. Now you have to have, I think, a signed form from parents to look at the books. There are some restrictions in place, but they're back on the shelves because there was such a pushback and it was such a knee-jerk reaction to the law. So um, a lot of times a law can be even misinterpreted by schools or schools can overreact to some of these laws. But a lot of the laws are also overreactions in and of themselves. So we're overreacting to an overreaction. Yes, exactly. Even the name of these bills, right? Like sensitive materials in schools bills. It really sounds like we're bringing nuclear waste or something into into our elementary schools. And a lot of parents are really concerned that what is being taught in schools is garbage. But the problem is that lately, a lot of these systems and these policies are being completely bypassed by the organizations that are going for blood when it comes to some of these book bans. And they are very organized. There are a lot of groups. I think um, PEN America found that there are at least 50 different groups pushing for book bans at national, state, or local levels. And that's a lot of parent groups and activist groups that are 
extremely active and they're promoting here are some books that you should go after and they're promoting how we should how you should go after them one of these advocacy groups uh that you're talking about is called no left turn in education i think the name really summarizes the very politicized nature of this current trend in book banning um no left turn maintains a list of books that it says are and here i quote used to spread radical ideologies to students. I was surprised to see that this includes a book that I actually associate with converting me from a pretty lazy learner into an actual scholar when I was an undergraduate. That's Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. Um, Another book that this group particularly doesn't like is Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) That just feels so on the nose, doesn't it? Yeah. I think a lot of if, especially if you're conservative and religious, they're calling out conservative religious Christians in The Handmaid's Tale as people who tend to be authoritative. And that's not necessarily true, but that's what comes across in the story. And I think any group from any political extremist could turn authoritarian, but you have to, that, that, that book really pokes at people and makes them nervous for various reasons. Yeah, and here you're talking about challenges that aren't just coming from the political right and self-censorship that's not just coming from the political right. Books like Of Mice and Men and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn have also been challenged generally from the political left because of the use of racial expletives and stereotypes. And, And like you were saying, just words that we don't want to be using impolite company anymore. And not just the really bad ones, but like you said, like like words that may be a little bit more nuanced, but we're still, we're growing uncomfortable with, right? Oh, absolutely. How do you parse out the difference between those sorts of challenges, between the challenges that are happening from the right and the left? Do you, do you see it all in the same vein or do you see it in different ways? Well, I think some of the differences are just the methods in which people go about to deal with the things they're uncomfortable with. So I think everybody involved wants to do what's best for children, but people have different philosophies of how to go about it. So some kids are uh, targeted for different reasons because of their appearance or or because of their race or because of their religion. And so sometimes um, people, publishers and authors go back and self-censor censorship that is forcing other people's children to do what you want your children to do, that tends to be a little bit more damaging. And sometimes it can be cause huge problems with the availability of materials. Because I know I read uh, just the other day um, an article about two different school districts in Florida that have just looked into completely getting rid of all book materials in their schools because they don't want to deal with this anymore. And it is this variety of materials that's at the heart of a lot of the pushback to these efforts to challenge and ban books and make them less available to students. Because it's the students, the young people who maybe are not able to see themselves as easily in their communities that need 
these sorts of materials more than anybody else, right? Well, I think everybody needs them, but some people are getting that self-recognition more than other people. So um, Rudine Sims Bishop, um, in an article called Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Glass Doors, which is frequently quoted from, um, she talks about this concept. It's, it's really familiar. We talk about literature being a window to another world. Um, but she talks about how it's also a mirror and how we need to be able to see ourselves in validating ways in literature. So Grace Lynn, who is a Newbery Award-winning author and fantastic person, <laughs> she has a TED Talk where she talks about this concept. And she talks about growing up and never seeing an Asian person in any book that she read and how when she was in elementary school, she, like all the other girls at school, wanted to be Dorothy in the school play in The Wizard of Oz until she was out on the playground and one girl, she said, do you think I could become Dorothy? And another girl, girl looks at her and says, no, Dorothy's not Asian. And she just was crushed. And she talks about how now she writes books about characters that she would have loved to see as a kid because she didn't have that kind of mirror growing up. Because if parents have grown used to a world and, and here, you know, I'm going to talk primarily about white, straight parents have grown used to a world in which children's literature largely reflects a white, straight experience and they're they're used to that if that's that's all they've ever seen but the reality is is that writers have always self-centered right let's have always self-censored like these stories have always been part of our world and either because the writers you know gay writers didn't write about gay being gay or because gay writers weren't allowed to be published writing about gay their stories even though those were part of our world were not part of children's literature and so this movement that you're talking about you know just in the last decade to sort of try to create a little bit more balance in the literature isn't really this huge reflection of a big change in the makeup of our society. It's really just a reflection in the change of the things that we're willing to talk about. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I like to, I'm really fascinated by the story of Oscar Wilde and how he was prosecuted for uh, gay activity in the public eye. And all of his works are very heteronormative as well, which is really interesting. Um, and so I think there's a, a big shift in what's considered acceptable overall. Uh, you know, there are a lot of rights that have been fought for and, and people who have been in power historically um, sometimes feel like when other people have rights, it takes away from their power, which isn't true at all usually. So I think some of that is probably feeding into what's the book banning craze. And Wilde, I think it's generally agreed that he was less prolific um, because of this, right? Like he only wrote one novel, um, The Portrait three of Dorian. Yeah. Right, right. Three I mean, like, and this is one of, I mean, almost universally agreed upon, like one of the really great writers of his time. And we have so little material from him. And so it does beg the question, like, 
what are writers not able to do right now because they're busy doing things like, well, like for instance, that George Johnson had to do after he wrote All Books Aren't Blue, which was actually like going to school board hearings and defending his work. That's something that a lot of authors have not in the past had to worry about doing to defend their work. Yeah. A a lot of writers find that when their book is challenged, some people say, oh, hey, now you'll sell more books. But what's really more accurate is a lot of times it feels like a personal attack and a really painful one at that. So um, Kelly Yang talks about how her books have been challenged pretty much all of her books have been challenged multiple times. She's a Newbery Award winner. She wrote um, Front Desk about an immigrant girl and her family just fighting back about against injustice and helping take care of other immigrants in California. And, um, and also her book Parachute is about surviving sexual assault. And both of those books just challenge people's worldviews so much that they sometimes have a hard time with them in the schools. And so she's she had a post on Twitter, I think yesterday, where she says, "What? here's what I would like to tell parents who are trying to ban books so other people's children can't read them. And she talks about how it's really important to be able to talk with your children about things that you're uncomfortable with. The author Lori House Anderson. Oh, um, she's great. She's great. Her Her books have frequently been challenged also. And she is worried, you know, we talked earlier about how students who can't access these books are going to feel uh, or may feel worse about themselves because they can't see themselves. But uh, Hal Sanderson says it goes the other way, too. It, it lays the groundwork for increasing bullying and disrespect and violence. So it's kind of a one-two combination punch of I can't see myself in these books and also it's creating a, an environment where people don't see me and treat me as, as another as well. Absolutely. And uh, her book, Speak, is about speaking up after sexual assault as well. And it's been challenged as pornographic, which is really ironic because it doesn't even show the scene where the girl is raped. It's about dealing with the aftermath of this situation. So it's challenged by people who haven't read the book. But because it's, it can create a safe space for a lot of people to be able to talk about their experiences. And she's one of the many, many writers who gets letters all the time that's saying, your book saved my life. I now feel like I can talk about things. You mentioned this idea that books get challenged for being... I think sometimes we attribute some of these things, and I also think there's some truth to this. We attribute some of these actions to a political situation in which we are fast approaching a minority majority nation and where people who have grown used to power in the past are fearful of what is about to happen. But gosh, you know, it seems like if you're fearful about what is about to happen, the last thing that you want to be doing is creating laws that allow lawmakers to call schools and say, don't assign this book, don't allow this book. It's not very far away from then a world in which, you know, people are using that same 
practice and those same laws against you, right? Yeah. Well, as a person who wears glasses, I really don't want to be in the situation where we've got a country that bans intellectuals. I'm thinking of the the Khmer Rouge going into Cambodia and they um, assassinated people who had education, who had property, and even people who wore glasses. So it, this feels really like a 1950s Red Scare, blacklisting people uh, for having opinions that are different than you know, what is politically expedient at the time. It really feels like an overreaction that history is going to look down on later. Right now, we have a lot of books being challenged um, because of fears over, you know, they, they might contain critical race theory, right? But, but, you know, the people who fought for racial equality um, were often, were often people of faith. MLK was a man of faith. Malcolm X was a man of faith. Uh, abolitionists were people of faith. I mean, this, it seems like these are parts of our history that a lot of people who might be prone to sort of have this knee-jerk reaction toward book banning could really take advantage of. If if they just took a step back and said, what are the parts of this that we're really proud of and that we can all get together around? I think the main thing we can take from this is we all need to listen to each other a lot more. Um, sometimes uh, the review process for banned books is very internal and only the educators get to review the books that are being challenged. And we do need to make sure that the parents' points of view are included on those committees. And vice versa, you know, the parents who are banning books need to also be willing to listen to the educators and hear the points of view and why they selected those books and all the reasons why they think it's important. And they need to be willing to read the books themselves. If you're going to challenge something, you need to know it and understand it well enough so you can have logical reasons why you might not want it. But more than that, we have to also recognize that other people have rights and that it's not right to take away opportunities from other people's children just because you don't want them for your children. Do you have a favorite among the books that have been recently targeted? I really like one collection that was removed from a classroom is the Essential Voices Classroom Library. And I'm looking at it, and I just like pretty much every book on the list. It's got um, For Black Girls Like Me. So one of my favorites is Kekla McCoon's Revolution in Our Time, about the Black Panther movement. And my students have read some books about the Black Panthers, and they're always really surprised that at how community-based it was. It was about feeding children, educating them, getting them their immunizations, you know, making sure that people in the community learn how to read, different things like that. And the Black Panthers are mostly known for their stunning imagery, walking around with rifles. And when you read about the reasons why they carried around guns, it's because they were concerned about police violence and they wanted to police the police. And even if you don't necessarily agree with the methods they went through, it's really, if you read more about the movement, um, you'll find so many things to admire. So I like that because it, just opens up a lot of people's perspectives. What do we do to make 
sure that books by authors like Kekla Magoon can still find their ways into the hands of the people who both want to read them and need to read them in a world in which these books are being increasingly challenged. Well, for me, as a teacher educator, I try and make sure that my students are aware of all of the options that they have. Um, I try to promote things online. Sometimes people say, buy copies of the book and give it to your local library, and that helps a little bit. But I think we also need, if you're against book banning, you need to go to school district meetings yourself and say, this isn't right. We need to go through proper channels. We need to talk about this more. We need to listen to each other more um, and, and fight back against censorship and book banning in ways that are unhealthy for children and for the society we live in. That's Genevieve Ford. She's an associate professor of English at Utah State University and a fierce defender of children's literature. Genevieve, thank you. Hey, thank you. Keep up the good work. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public ri- and from public radio listeners like Hawk Mendenhall from Austin, Texas, whose generous donation has made this month of programming possible. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>